Welcome to The Painter's Dialectic. I'm your host, Josh Green, a painter and art educator living in New York City. And today we're going to talk about freeing your mind with Stephen Hassan's Bite Model. Today I'm joined with moral philosopher Dylan Ahn. And in today's episode, Dylan and I discuss the importance of Stephen Hassan's work. He is an expert on mind control techniques and how to free oneself from mind control. We will discuss the differences between healthy and unhealthy group dynamics, and this will kind of be the closing episode for the previous two we did on education. This episode will help us identify when a person, a group, or a society is manipulating us in an unhealthy way and what we can do about it. Don't just listen to the podcast, participate in it, like, subscribe, and share our content. You can go to our Patreon page, The Painter's Dialectic, and subscribe. We have different tiers with behind-the-scenes content of how we develop these ideas. If you'd like to study with me, great, I'd love to see you. Go to greenatelier.art and sign up for lessons. To see my art, you can go to joshgreenart.com. If you'd like to follow our Instagram page, it's The Painter's Dialectic. This support will help us to continue making this meaningful content. Dylan, it's good to see you again for another new episode. How have you been? Yeah, how's it going? Yeah, going good. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing good. I've been thinking about our last episode. I don't feel proud about where I landed. I felt like it was too mm. pessimistic. And um, right. I think we actually have a lot more power than we think. And there's a lot more that we mm. can do, especially if mm. we work together, right? Um mm. But I thought I'd bring some maybe optimistic light today to the show. Mm. And uh, I've been researching this guy. His name is Stephen Hassan. He is an American mental health counselor, a cult expert, like the cults, not the occult, mm-hmm. and an author. Mm-hmm. He is best known for his works on cults and mind control, such as combating. Uh, his book, Combating Cult Mind Control, and his other book, Releasing the Bonds, Empowering People to Think for Themselves, which is what this podcast is about, too. So um, he is also the founder of the Freedom of Mind Research Center, a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping individuals and families affected by cults. Uh, he is a vocal advocate for victims of cults and has been a major force in exposing the tactics used by cults to manipulate and control their members. He has also been a strong advocate for the rights of individuals to think and make decisions for themselves, free from any influence or mind control. Um, What I've been reading is uh, his dissertation, published January 2021, called The Bite Model of Authoritarian Control, Undue Influence, Thought Reform, Brainwashing, Mind Control, Trafficking, and the Law. Okay? Um, and in that, he, he demystifies mind control, you know. Uh, he says that for most people it's ambiguous or this kind of, um, maybe they don't even believe that it's real. But he defines it in concrete terms. And um, he presents a model of that called the BITE model, which stands for Behavior, Information, Thought, and Emotional Control. Um, and so why is, why is this important? Well, you know, in the previous episodes we did, we show that governments are using these things, setting standards and, and uh, manipulating through education, right? 
Um, mm. We don't know to what extent and how much of this is conspiracy and how much is actual history. But if we look around, you know, it may be hard to look at your country in that way, but it's easier to look at other countries in that way, mm -hmm. right? But um, there is evidence, you know, that our country has done this. Uh, the CIA has a long history investigating different forms of mind control. And we know this, the evidence for this is called MKUltra. The CIA has admitted the existence of this program. And there are documents related to it. There's also multiple testimonies by people who were victims of the program, you know, within America and abroad. And there are declassified documents in the Freedom of Information Act that talk about the experiments that were conducted. So that's pretty compelling research that these things have been done in America. Uh, another one that's really obvious is the Chinese government. Um, they have been known to use a variety of mind controls, which actually Hassan's work is based on, um, over their citizens. The techniques range from propaganda to censorship of information and in, in public opinion and using surveillance technologies, right? So governments change, the world's change, and, and mind control is now, you know, the safest form of warfare, right? We talked about the atomic weapons and then the movement to invisible warfare and trying to control people's minds. So this is just an extension of that. So what does the BITE model actually say? Well, so BITE is behavior, information, thought, and emotional control, right? Um, behavior is trying to regulate an individual's physical reality and the time spent with group indoctrination. Financial exploitation and discouraging individualism and encouraging group think. Controlling the information is withholding information, distorting information to seem more acceptable, encouraging spying from members in the group on other members, and hmm. minimize or discourage access to non-cult sources of information. You see that in China, right? They have internet blocks in Russia and other countries. They block hearing certain reporters or doing these things and um, also using VPNs or, or encrypted internet uh, is illegal. Um, thought control requires members to internalize the group doctrine as truth us versus them mentality, um, the use of loaded language and cliches which constrict knowledge, and they encourage good and proper thoughts. And emotional control is to promote feelings of guilt or unworthiness, to instill fear, love bombing or praise, uh, declaring someone is a sinner, shunning those who leave, uh, making a person feel that the problems are always their own fault, right? Mm. Um, that's in general. Um, so what then is the positive? And he makes this really beautiful graph called the influence continuum, which uh, is divided between a constructive pole and a destructive pole, healthy and unhealthy. So for individuals, if you're in a healthy group, it should feel like you get to be your authentic self. You have, you're unconditionally loved. Uh, you're able to have a conscience. Um, you're creative and, and humorous. Uh, you have free will and the ability to critically think. Okay, so that's the healthy 
situation for an individual. The unhealthy is uh, you get a new identity, a cult identity, a false identity. Um, you're conditionally shown love and appreciation. Instead of a conscience, you have a doctrine. Instead of creativity and humor, you have solemnity, fear, and guilt. And instead of free will and critical thinking, you have dependency and obedience. Um, the leaders that are constructive and destructive have these qualities. So the healthy one, they're psychologically healthy. The destructive are narcissistic and psychopathic. Uh, the healthy leader knows their limits, and the unhealthy are elitist and grandiose. Uh, the healthy one empowers individuals. The destructive one is power-hungry. The healthy leader is trustworthy, and the unhealthy is secretive and deceptive. The healthy leader is accountable you know, and transparent. The other one claims absolute authority. Um, for organizations, a healthy one has checks and balances within the power. Unhealthy is an authoritarian structure. Uh, the healthy is inf has informed consent, right? The unhealthy one manufactures consent, is deceptive and manipulative. Uh, the healthy mm -hmm. one allows for individuality and diversity. The unhealthy one clones people, you know, clones the same type of person, right? Mm -hmm. um, the healthy one has means to create uses means to create ends, but the unhealthy one treats, uses ends to justify any means, right? Uh, the healthy encourages growth, the, the, the unhealthy preserves its own power, right? One allows evolution, one is preserving. Uh, and one, you're free to leave at any time. That's fine. And the other one, there's never a legitimate reason to leave. Mm. So that's... I think that's enough said. That's kind of the general overview. You know, go read the book yourself and, and check them out if you're interested. But I thought that was a really nice framework to begin, you know, our dialect for today. Yeah, interestingly enough, right, I think it's also a good way to tell, right, that you don't necessarily have to have all of these things in mind. If you're a well-rounded sort of self-aware critical thinker and you get approached by some organization of this particular nature, it is somehow just a little bit off-putting. You just feel suddenly very uneasy about this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So speaking from like personal experiences, you might have had similar experiences, oh, definitely. especially religious definitely. and organizations. And you, you know, maybe some of your friends or people you know are part of these organizations, they try and sway you and you just have one conversation about this particular, and then you, and you suddenly, it just occurs to you that something is definitely going wrong, mm -hmm. right? There's this notion of a blind faith that is required. There is yes. this notion where you're supposed to abandon your personal boundaries in order to, you know, go for some higher sort of disproval, un sort of justifiable or impossible to prove goal, mm -hmm. right? There's no standard um, as to what is good, what is bad, or that standard is usually held just by one mystical sort of figurehead. And interestingly enough, right, religions operate in a very, very similar way. But interestingly enough, the founders of those religions quite often, not always, there are a lot of sort of founders of religions are themselves by, you know, nature cultish, and I won't name them in case, you know, <laughs> you know, but 
to name the most famous ones, for instance, Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. He himself was, you can consider him to be sort of like a rebel. Definitely. Right? Disliked authority, right? And he was sort of put to death for that, for that fact. Mm-hmm. He sort of believed in sort of a fundamental equality mm-hmm. of human beings, right? He believed in love and treating each other with compassion. He believed in sort of questioning authority and the idea that somehow a group of people has the sole right to interpret what God's sort of position is. Yeah. Um, and then you look in the East as well. Uh, in China, you've got Lao Tzu and Confucius, who were very much rebelling against what was predominantly the trend at the time. Lao Tzu mm-hmm. more than Confucius. Confucius, you can still argue, he was sort of clinging, he's more conservative, and his philosophy in his early years certainly reflected that conservative nature. But in his later years, he sort of reverted to a very sort of Taoist sort of philosophy, realizing that trying to control everybody just isn't wasn't going to work right trying mm-hmm. to get everybody to to do what they're told to know their place was mm-hmm. his philosophy in his younger years when he was a politician but when he became an educator he realized that that simply is impossible right as a teacher as an educator you had to respect sort of the individual qualities of his students and he recognized that every one of his students was slightly different maybe some were more sort of hot tempered some are a little bit different Lao Tzu was completely sort of a free spirit in every means right he didn't care at all about any of this stuff and then you go sort of further south you've got the Buddha who was a re- rebellion in all sense of the world word right rebelled against the, the notion of this monarchy rebelled against the caste system rebelled against the sort of predominant brahmin religions uh in their belief of sort of animal sacrifice that sort of thing mm-hmm. and so you see that people who who are influencing figures or founders of particular philosophies tended to be rebellious mm-hmm. in nature because in order to for you to come up with something new, in order for you to be a critical thinker, you have to be critical, yeah. right? You have to be critical and go against what is predominantly considered or taken uh, to be the case for granted, right? Without any sort of questioning. And then you look at the philosophers, right? They're all, you know, they're they're is a rebellious streak amongst philosophers, Socrates being the, you know, the most famous <laughs> one, but of course, you know, Bertrand Russell and most of them, some of them go to, go to prison for, for that nature. So maybe there's something to say about that, this notion of having a rebellious sort of spirit, of wanting to question, right? Yeah, definitely. They are not necessarily right, right? No. But they do wish to question. And that's quite important. Like, it may be the case that the predominant or trending belief is correct. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, right, it's worth asking the questions and figuring it out for yourself why it's correct rather than just accepting it as it is. Mm-hmm. Right? But there comes a little bit of a paradox of when you want to change a system of knowledge into an organization of people, how do you allow people to maintain sort of critical thinking and rebellious nature and still maintaining some sort of order and organization Mm -hmm. it's hard because people do need to be educated not indoctrinated but enlightened Mm. right and um right uh i think you know religious organizations are very obvious political organizations are very obvious but also families you know can be this Mm. or even a relationship or even yourself you can act out in Mm. these ways so that's what i love about the buying models it applies to all those levels but, um, you know, for me, I think uh, 
you know, I don't, I don't think you have to be uh, a believer in a God or a spiritual mm-hmm. to be a moral person. There's so many very moral and ethical uh, atheists. Mm-hmm. So either any way you go, I think if you are going to be spiritual, I think if for me, when I penetrate that idea, it's how I relate to the world outside, right? Mm-hmm. My relationship to this thing going on. I think that's where religion comes from. If we look at the founders of religion, these people were critical thinkers. It began as a philosophy, and the philosophy Mm -hmm. devolves into dogma, right? Mm -hmm. These people who are more critical thinkers teach other people to become critical thinkers, and then those people begin becoming authoritarians, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that de-evolution of philosophical thought down and when you're falling into a dogma and group thinks and you're not allowed to question like mm-hmm. I was raised a Southern Baptist and mm-hmm. a lot of things made me feel a little gross like the big stadium churches you know mm-hmm. I was baptized above a choir in a <laughs> pool with mm-hmm. hundreds of people looking at me and cheering and the guy dunks me underwater like mm-hmm. wild stuff you know was going on but um, I remember when I was about 12 or so, I was like, if this is true, um, mm-hmm. if religion is true, if Christianity is true, then even if I question it, I will inevitably go back to the place I am now, right? Mm-hmm. So is that so bad? Is it really a sin to begin questioning mm-hmm. my beliefs? And I think in a healthy religion, they provide all that for you right Mm -hmm. um they allow you to explore because they are truth seekers Mm -hmm. right um and and the the individual if you're in a religious group you see like in the catholic truth they try to separate you from the divinity right in the old one they used to keep it everything in latin all the higher knowledge was in latin which people didn't have access to but i think a good spirituality is like you possess the divine right Mm -hmm. you're in control and you can do that in your home and have that journey if you're an atheist you know how nihilistic are you becoming right um Mm -hmm. the atheists have the same problem it's about how i relate to the world out there and the community that i'm in you know even if i believe things are meaningless or there isn't someone the police of the universe whatever going to come get me um your actions still impact others and have an effect on the world and actually if you're an atheist Mm -hmm it's even more critical to waste someone's time or to steal those moments of their life because this is the only life they get, right? Mm -hmm. And same for years, you're even more upset about Mm -hmm. someone taking that time and energy from you. Um, But I'll pass it back to you. That's kind of my thoughts. Yeah, I completely agree, right? I think there's definitely something to be said about striking a very fine balance, Mm -hmm. right? So... I, I, you, when you mention the de-evolution of sort of philosophy and critical thinking into dogma, right? It sort of reminds me of this idea of there's this really smart individual and, you're, and everybody else is just copying their homework, right? Yeah. On the surface, everything looks like it's correct, right? There's a consistency there and we like consistency because consistency gives us a feeling of certainty. But mm-hmm. you can learn everything there is to what they think but you can't learn how they think by copying their answers right Right. so jesus has this notion where you know salvation is through jesus but people misinterpret they think that's through the belief in him but jesus was clearly in his actions telling and teaching people to be like him 
Yeah. Right. Not to believe in him because that you know is is a pointless. If you you can believe in Jesus and do still do terrible terrible things, right? That's Absolutely. not gonna help, <laughs> right? You have to be like him, and you have to try and becoming a more become a more loving, forgiving individual, right? In order for things to ever get any better, mm-hmm. right? And so there's this notion in a lot of religions where they they want certainty they crave this sort of finality mm-hmm. right and i won't name the religion but there's a very famous one who calls themselves the final religion right okay that this is it you know the punishment for not believing uh in that particular faith is death right um and i remember sort of when i was a younger sort of person and i loved sort of the four horsemen of atheism i remember sort of looking into arguments and counter arguments against religion and i really didn't like something just didn't sit right with me that this idea of believe in me or die (laughs) there's just something very very malicious and very very sort of terrifying about that notion right Mm -hmm. but for a lot of people it isn't terrifying in fact it's quite comforting Mm -hmm. because on pain of death it gives you this sort of sense of certainty this bedrock Right. But of course, you know, Christianity on balance, right? Even Richard Dawkins says it's on balance is not as bad because Jesus himself, at least like the institution, right? Their crimes will set to aside, but at least Jesus himself, he speaks of, you know, the parable of the Samaritans, mm-hmm. right? The good Samaritan, the idea that you do not need to be a Christian or a Jew, right? In order to do good. In mm-hmm. fact, he points at this particular individual who doesn't believe in any of this stuff mm-hmm. and takes and teaches his sort of disciples, you know, here's a good person. Here's a model individual, right. right? You know, these religious figures pass by this person in need of help. And it is this person who has no affiliation, who is considered to be an other or even a cultural or philosophical sort of an opponent um, that stops and helps the person who is in need. So that shows that's proof from jesus himself that you do not need faith in a particular religion or a particular god in order to do good Mm -hmm. goodness resides in the individual in the human and for a lot of christians that's like a huge slap in the face Mm -hmm. because they like to think that it is god Mm -hmm. right that is the origin of goodness that he is the one and it is the belief in this divine that gives us the goodness not knowing that a lot of sort of later um, interpreters and in mostly influenced by Eastern traditions that they have an emphasis in Hinduism and Taoism and Buddhism that you are it, mm-hmm. right? You are God, essentially. You just don't know it yet, <laughs> right? Within you possesses the infinite potentiality of anything, right? And so when they say believing in a higher power or a God, they are really saying you have to believe in yourself, right? So. A classic example is like in the beginning, the Buddha says that you should have to take refuge mm-hmm. uh, in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, the Buddha, his teachings and the community. You should have to take refuge in these three things. And he says these things in the beginning because precisely as a teacher, he recognizes that a lot of people at the time crave the sense of certainty. But before he dies at the end of his life, he says that in actuality, what I've been trying to get across to you is that you have to take refuge in yourself. There is no other salvation other than yourself. There is no other refuge, right? Yeah. The Buddha that I speak of that you should take refuge in is your own self-awareness. And Buddha translated into English is awareness, mm-hmm. right? So you think you are placing your, your life or your faith in something else. In actuality, 
you have to place it on you are responsible yeah. <laughs> essentially otherwise you know people can commit grave atrocities by simply dismissing and saying oh yes god told me to do it right? i'm doing it in the name of christ you know the crusades all of the jihads and holy wars and you know yeah. you can easily excuse your own personal responsibility by attributing it to a higher power that you believe has a plan right and we'll look out for you and we'll we'll set everything straight and as long as you blindly follow then everything will go right that is not in my opinion um the right way to go about things it's a very dangerous way of thinking because it ultimately leaves your fate and your actions to luck if you're lucky then you might be born into or be inducted into a you know a comparatively less harmful religion you know maybe a more peaceful sort of denomination like the quakers very very peaceful and pacifist right mm -hmm. but if you're unlucky and you have the same exact mindset then you'd fall into you know you just as equally as likely be you know inducted into like a cult yeah. right a death cult you know <laughs> there's a lot of you know famous american examples of people committing mass uh suicides i forget uh you know was there one called in Waco? Uh, yeah, there's been a lot yeah. of them. Like, a starship's going to come, pick us up, mm. and we're going to go to paradise or whatever. So let's all kill ourselves and go to that mm -hmm. spaceship. Or I don't know. Mm. Yeah. It, it, Stephen, Stephen Hassan fell for that. You know, he was completely mm. brainwashed. And it can happen to anyone. I think that's, that's the thing is that you never think it can happen to me. But we all fall victim mm -hmm. to, of, to it in some degree or to someone, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. maybe some, like, three principles are, you know, these religious leaders, right? They're not, a, they're not they don't want to be worshipped. They're mm -hmm. a symbol of your own potential, mm -hmm. right? Not the thing to be worshipped. And... Um, Another one is morality kind of is a balance rather than an extreme. The more mm -hmm. extreme you get, good or bad, that's usually where the immorality happens. You know, like, mm -hmm. we, we are the best. We need to go kill everyone else, right? The extremes. Right. And mm -hmm. then the other one, mistake in all of philosophy is, or any type of critical thought, the biggest error is thinking you've arrived at absolute knowledge. Mm. right any type yeah. of absolute truth i think those three you'll be pretty safe but we all fall for it mm -hmm. you know i'll probably fall for it again yeah. sometime in my life you know it's yeah yeah because <laughs> it feels safe it feels safe to know right that oh yes i'm i'm there i've arrived certainty is great finality yeah. right we like the idea of a foundationalist way of thinking where once we get to the bottom of it mm -hmm. then that will be it that will be solved um, yeah. But I'm not sure, like, in the broader sense, whether we actually want that. I think there's a lot of to be said about the joy of discovery, which is what the scientists often talk about. There's this lovely feeling that there's more to discover. And it, this you shouldn't okay. take things so it's not about trying to, you know, know everything, because that's impossible, right? It's about trying to get a greater understanding of oneself and your place in the world mm -hmm. and trying to make something good out of that right the yeah. latter part is not as scientific but of course anybody who takes science to a certain level i recently watched um 
sort of, I think it's from Wired, uh, mm-hmm. where this physicist explains time in different levels. He explains it to like a child, a college student, a grad student, and like an expert on the on, on notion of time. And it starts, it begins with very mathematical, very scientific uh, concepts as a basis, right? Because all science starts there. And as he sort of increases the level and he's talking to these increasingly more knowledgeable and more and greater expertise, they get more and more philosophical mm-hmm. in what they talk about. Because they start to think about once you take any discipline to a certain level, then you have to consider, okay, now that I know this, now what? What do I do with this information, mm-hmm. right? I have these skills and I have these abilities to sort of see a star from many, many, many light years away. I can s- literally see the background cosmic radiation that left over from the Big Bang. So what do I do about this? A lot of scientists and physicists and astronomers often note that astronomy is a very humbling discipline mm-hmm. because it forces you to look at how insignificant you are universally speaking and how significant you are sort of in terms of a personal basis right you are simultaneously the most insignificant and significant thing to ever happen to you (laughs) right (laughs) universally you're just a blip in time and space but of course Mm -hmm. everything you do and everything that encompasses your entire life revolves around you and you have to find a balance between this nihilistic sense okay i'll just go kill myself because i'm so unimportant and also recognizing i'm not this universe isn't about me Mm-hmm. Right? There's a happy balance to be found that, yes, I recognize that I'm, this universe isn't about me, but it's also about other people, what I can do, right? how I can influence others, how I can be a good sort of person, uh, hopefully, right? at least <laughs> off balance, better than worse. Right? Yeah, I, I think science, you know, it's becoming a spirituality, but I, I think it is mm-hmm. a very beautiful spirituality in a sense because they're mm-hmm. very critical uh, they are engaging nature. I think if we blended it with more philosophy, it'd really be something powerful. But the oldest um, religion, the early ancient things, were very scientific. Um, mm-hmm. Doing chemistry, you know, came from alchemy. Um, studying plant medicines and and mm-hmm. um, hallucinogens, right? And and mm-hmm. and and all these. It was very scientific. Looking at the body and and. And as we go forward in time, the more manipulative religions are abstracting people from nature, right? Mm -hmm. But I think the really beautiful ones are philosophical and scientific together. Mm -hmm. Um, But even science, there's a lot of problems Mm. I find in that because um, there's the scientific realists who believe their calculations Mm. explain real things without evidence. And... um, Mm. And now you see that it looks like that physics is hitting a point where the old model has mm-hmm. failed. And what do they do? They continue obfuscating it, making it more and more complex instead of questioning mm-hmm. the paradigms that we hold. Mm-hmm. And, and also, you know, we, we try to fit everything into um, the logic of quantity, you know, which is math. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. there's so many things like the subjective experience where physics has hit the wall now is that right materialism mm-hmm. has hit the wall of such subjective experience with the interpretations of quantum mechanics and many words theory or even general mm-hmm. relativity my view of the truth is different than yours depending on your motion in space-time right mm-hmm. and and there's you can't really apply the logic of quantity to mm-hmm. something that's 
an, a non-physical epiphenomenon arising out of materialism, right? Mm-hmm. The consciousness. Yeah. I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, unfortunately, there is no God's eye view. Right? Yeah. Because we, we, I mean, any investigation that we take upon ourselves has to be from our point of view. And I mean, from like, at least a human point of view. Yeah. We can't take any other point of view other than our own, unfortunately. No. <laughs> and that's, that's, you know, uh, that means that we have a limitation in terms of what we can know. But I think mm-hmm. if you're sort of a well-rounded, sort of critically thinking scientist, then you recognize that that is a limitation. But you also recognize that this is the best you can do within right. this uh, limitation. And so, again, like good scientists often take a little bit further Right? They take their thinking into metaphysics, into philosophy, and when they realize, okay, there are certain things that I cannot work and I cannot discover with this tool set that I have access to. Mm-hmm. But I do have an imagination, and that's what I can play with. Right? And so Carl Sagan completely agrees with you that he thinks that you know, science is a source of spirituality. Yeah. Right. If you recognize the implications of what the facts tell you, it can be a great sense of spirituality. It reminds yeah. you to be humble. It reminds you that things are impermanent. Um, and to sort of link it back to the idea, the notion of a cult, mm-hmm. it is actually not a paradox to simultaneously recognize that you are not at fault mm-hmm. joining a cult, right? Yeah. But you also have the power to leave one. Yeah. Right, you have the potential to leave one, right, and you can do something about it. But you are not responsible for getting indoctrinated or you know staying with a cult, and that's where people have a lot of difficulty, right? People who aren't in there often, or consider themselves to be a critical thinker, often underestimating the power of the environment, and of course, to some extent, genetics, right? To some extent, other factors. Uh, family, socioeconomic as well. Mm -hmm. And they like to blame, right, cult members, right? Uh, They like to say, oh, it's your fault, or, you know, clearly there's something wrong with you individually. But sometimes, as you've recognized, like, anybody can fall prey. It's it's just a matter of chance, whether you're born into a specific family, a certain socioeconomic status, right? Maybe that particular cult did give you a lot of support, right? They fed you. They gave you free things, right? Their community helped you. They sort of helped you move homes, right? Mm-hmm. So how could you not fall into that when you're receiving so much love, as you say, like love bombing, yeah. right? There's a reason why cults are effective is because they use these techniques that target the vulnerabilities of our very, very sort of basic and important needs, our need for recognition, our need for love and affection, our need for, you know, basic necessities. And it's very hard to take a step back and question the people who have fed you, mm-hmm. right? right? It's like biting the hand that feeds you. How can you bring yourself to do that? But unfortunately, they don't do this out of the goodness of their heart, no. right? Or they may think that it's out of their goodness of their heart, but it ultimately comes at a very, very dangerous cost, right? So often, Bertrand Russell often speaks about this in his Problems of Philosophy, where there's a, or maybe it was Hume, um, or they both said it, where there's a problem of induction, Right? The turkey sort of sees that the farmer feeds them every day and they think, oh yes, by law of induction, he will do this until I die, until he doesn't. Right? <laughs> and so there is, a, there is a problem of induction where if everything that you've experienced from a cult are good things, it doesn't become a problem until it does. Right? And so I guess our project and the project of critical thinkers and scientists is how to get people to be self-aware and critically think. How do you convince 
the turkey, that the farmer that feeds them every day is a bad person that does not have your best interest in heart and is planning to kill you, <laughs> right? That's a very hard sell, yeah. right? Because every piece of evidence they have access to has been positive, mm-hmm. right? And so how do we sort of in general on mass, right? Convince people that, okay, what you think isn't the problem here, right? Because if I start bringing in alternative things in terms of what you should be thinking about and have you consider thing and other evidence. People can ignore evidence and facts very, very easily, right? But if you go a subtler route, if you try and approach it with how to think of critical thinking, then it's a much less confrontational and much, you know, more palatable version of what ultimately achieves the same goals, right? Has he ever mentioned this person that you speak of? How did he come to be sort of just aware that he is, you know, in trouble. Uh, yeah, so I'm not an expert on this person, but mm. from what I understood, he spent two years with them. I think it was the Moonies. And mm. um, he was in a serious car wreck. Mm. And that time he spent in the hospital around his family mm. broke the cycle of constant indoctrination. And right. when he saw his family's reaction and people pointing out different perspectives, he began mm. questioning everything that was happening. I think he had mm. spent all of his savings and assets and everything to this group uh, to help support mm. them. But um, mm. that little moment of break um, is when he's, he had his window of, of, of getting out. But um, he's a really interesting guy. But I think... I try to always find like principles and Mm -hmm. I'm going to keep repeating this one is all these people, what they have in common is they face their fears, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Jesus, Buddha, whatever. They faced Mm -hmm. a lot of fear to do what Mm -hmm. they did. And they ultimately began acting from a fearless place in a place of love and responsibility and discipline, right? And balance, not -hmm. an extreme place. But what they symbolize is the power of the individual mm-hmm. who faces their fear and becomes critical and becomes philosophical. And they mm-hmm. were really just saving themselves. But in the process of saving themselves, they became such a powerful symbol that just mm-hmm. the act of doing that has echoed through the ages. Mm-hmm. That's the power of an individual, right? And, and it doesn't take a majority to change, you know, oppression. In, mm-hmm. in Northern Africa during the Arab Spring, it was incredible to watch, you know, the people overthrow a, an authoritarian government, like children mm-hmm. launching missiles with Google Maps. It's just, um, and it doesn't have to be a majority, but if you work on yourself, um, I think that's it. You can't manipulate content people. You mm-hmm. can't manipulate independent people people have their own food sources and water and knowledge right Mm -hmm. you can't manipulate healthy loving people it's people with Mm -hmm. fear and people who are dependent that you can easily control Mm -hmm. the good thing is is that you know on the on the manipulative end hardly everyone is ever truly content right hardly everyone is truly (laughs) comfortable (laughs) there's always the next thing and as long as you have that next thing that's just sort of a a way in Mm -hmm. but you're definitely right like these people don't go off 
sort of trying uh, to sort of influence people in the beginning, right? They have to first experiment on themselves before yeah. they go around telling people what they should be doing. They have to see that it works for themselves. I think that's quite yeah. important important right and that's similar to science that you there has to be an experimental process there has to be a scientific method of approach um you can't just think you know something but you haven't ever practiced it or tried it and then recommend it to someone else it's sort of yeah. sort of like a doctor that you know says oh yeah you should do all these things and never follows his own advice right yeah. tells you to exercise sleep more but he's sort of running on two hours of sleep yeah, never exercise and never eat healthy <laughs> right exactly and so it's very hard to be convincing if that's the sort of doctor um that you happen to be but i was sort of looking into uh, sort of Buddhist philosophy a little bit. And there's this notion of a sort of similar theme crops up a lot. So the Buddha often has to address this notion of binding or people being bound, right? And he sort of has this notion of 12 links of dependent origination. And he thinks mm -hmm. that people are bound in these sort of 12 ways. Um, and at each of these sort of links of being bound, there's a way of essentially breaking free, right? But it's harder as it goes on. So for instance, as you mentioned, uh, the person that you mentioned didn't have their, if you'd like, epiphany or self-awareness until he sort of was removed from the situation, right? He had an mm -hmm. accident. There was a lot of trauma. He, it was, he was forced to reflect on his life. He had to be, at, uh, be alone with his thoughts, right? You know, in a hospital, you're, there's, the visiting hours are not 24 hours. So you have to be alone with your thoughts. Um, and you're sort of isolated away from the continuance, continuing uh, influence from the cult. So that is what the Buddhist sort of considers to be contact. That's one of the links, right? Sometimes the thing that binds us is not necessarily that influencing. It's just that we're always in the bubble, yeah. right? We're always in contact with these particular individuals. Like it's almost like, you know, when you have friends that you know are a bad influence, right? Yeah. You're good the rest of the time, but you, whenever you're with this friend, <laughs> terrible things happen, <laughs> yeah. right? And so when you recognize this, right, then the solution is to sort of set some boundaries and to isolate yourself from or to give each other some space as an example. But of also there's uh, other aspects and each of them are uh, more difficult. So the most difficult notion is the idea of sort of suffering, right? And lack of hope, right? When you're already in sort of the deep end and you're looking at those who are already committed to sort of this mass suicide, they're committed to our Armageddon coming, right? They're committed to this notion of wanting to end it all, right? This is the hardest thing to get and most people don't, right? Of course, very rarely people recognize at that point, well, maybe if there is a lot of suffering, there's something to be done about it. Previous to that is this notion of becoming, which the Buddha sort of, uh, sort of goes on to explain more, this notion of setting right or making concrete your sense of self and identity right when you determine that this is it this is all i'm ever going to be and you don't allow yourself to ever change right you sort of solidify your identity and you say okay this is me i will accept no other further evidence i will know i will no longer accept any further counter arguments this is all i'm going to accept and i'm settled with this this is the second notion of binding 
right? When you refuse to change effectively. So this sort of happens more and more so with age, because the older we get, the more we're sure and certain of our identities and we dislike change. We dislike mm -hmm. changing who we are and we sort of dismiss the idea that we could ever be anything different. But of course, that's not true. We can always choose. We can always learn, learn new things, widen our horizons, widen our perspectives. But that's a very, very hard thing to ask. So the next thing after that is this notion of grasping. As we mentioned before, this notion of wanting certainty rather than accepting that this is a never-ending goal, right? A good scientist is a person that recognizes there is no end to this, this inquiry. That's a good thing, actually, right? The bad scientist is the one who thinks that this is it, I've done it. Or yeah. believing that there is an end goal that you could arrive at and that will solve all of the problems of the world right you there is a certainty there is a permanent end right there is a definitive final solution <laughs> right so of course the finality is the problem here of thinking that there is this finality um then there's craving right so there's actively pursuing the finality and of course that's that delusion and expectation of wanting that final solution. And you hear a lot of people who, who do this, who look for sort of uh, these cure-all solutions to their problems. Like, if only I had this, that would, that would solve yeah, everything. Right? If only I bought this car, <laughs> if only I signed up to this 24-week this meditation course, and mm -hmm. if only I bought into the, these group products, then everything will be okay, mm -hmm. right? So the Buddha says, well, this is an unrealistic and impossible expectation you're setting yourself. It is, you're setting yourself up for you know, disappointment and ultimate failure because none of these things in the world, there's nothing in the world that gives you this one-size-fits-all, cure-all solution, right? And of course, you know, in the, even in the medical sense, people used to think that heroin is this magical cure because it just made you feel great. <laughs> right? they used to think, and then slowly they discovered that actually there is a very heavy cost to that notion. Before that is sensation. So ultimately, right, we are bound by things that feel good to us and things that don't feel good to us. So like I mentioned before, there's a reason why the cults are so powerful because they love bomb you. They give you everything you want. And there's this, this very, very sort of uh, interesting notion in the Tao Te Ching when Lao Tzu talks about you know, political tactics. Right? If you wish to destroy someone or if you wish to take everything from someone, give them everything they want. <laughs> right, that's the, you know, the first thing you should do is give them everything you they yeah, want first right. because that's the easiest way to take everything from someone so we're very very bound and we like when people are nice to us and they give us compliments they support us but sometimes that is the trap right it's like a honey trap it give you know all traps are based on Definitely. this notion you give some you give food you give something to people they want and then you tie the noose around their legs or you, you <laughs> set up it so all traps work in the same way this notion of working with your sensation and the solution to that is to be aware right to have long-term sort of vision right doctors will tell you that yes you may want to have this ice cream now right but if you have a if you just wait a moment and you take you know a second and you realize okay maybe apples in the long run <laughs> right more fruits and vegetables is good for you and you don't respond to every immediate pleasure that's a better way when you have long-term critical thinking when you're able to see further than your immediate sensory pleasure that would usually generate a better sort of outcome the next one after that is what we mentioned with contact so the reason why we would have this pleasure in the, sense, in the first place is that we have a contact with it, right? If we don't come into contact with these cults, it's impossible for them to ever sort of uh, get to us. So mm -hmm. in terms of personal practical safety, right, 
a normal individual, a critical thinking individual, won't just hang out in cults. <laughs> right, they just won't go to like Scientology centers oh, and just totally you know chill out there. I, totally <laughs> I think it takes a very very mentally strong person to do that. I think if you know what you're doing, then that's definitely possible. Yeah. But to the average individual, right? Yeah. If you were raising your child, you probably no. wouldn't say you know no. just go hang out with those Scientologists and see what would happen. So <laughs> all of these, none of these things are absolutely certain, but they're sort of you know practical notions of what happens when we sort of take our eye off the ball, right? Contact mm -hmm. is not a problem, but if we inadvertently always do and form habits with the same sort of people, then, you know, mm -hmm. we tend to pick up habits and influ be influenced by the people that we come into contact with. The one before that is the six senses. So, of course, contact has to work with what we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we touch, you know. You know, there's a, it's no coincidence that cults often use these tactile tactics, right? They like touching, right? So mm -hmm. you see a lot of sort of uh, cults, I see this a lot in Buddhism as well, where they use touch, right? As a form of almost like this tactile hypnosis, right? You make them feel all warm and fuzzy by sort of mm -hmm. holding their head and you do this all sort of, the, so in terms of tactics, Right. If you feed them, you give them nice tasting things. Right. You light incense. You burn sage, and you give them nice smelling environments. You light candles. Right. <laughs> that creates a very, very pleasurable environment. And people don't often recognize that the reason why you feel good in a particular place is not necessarily about anything, you know, beneficial. It's just they're messing around with their senses. They dim the lights, for yeah. instance. They make you yeah. feel more. You know, they they stimulate your melatonin, so you're less awake, you're less critically judgmental, and you're more susceptible, right? And so, from a physical point of view, these tactics are not just you know exclusive to cults. Casinos use them. Right? Yeah. There's a reason why you never see the light of day inside. They don't have any windows, no clocks. They always have loud noises. These are you know very very powerful tactics that deal with your six senses, right? And so. Mm -hmm. The solution to that is to be aware. Like when you go into a casino, now that you know, you're aware that they're using these, oh, you figure out, oh, it turns yeah. out they play those, you know, jackpot noises through the through the system. No one's actually winning <laughs> anything. They just play the sound, so it makes give you the illusion <laughs> that people are always winning in a casino. And then before that, there's name and form. So conceptual sort of binding. So you might think that just because someone's a Christian, they must be a good person, mm -hmm. right? It's, just because someone's a Buddhist, that means they must be a good person. That's because someone has a conceptual name yeah. or they take a particular form that it means so-and-so. Anybody can dress up like they <laughs> are a peaceful, kind Buddhist. It's not that expensive of a gear to shave your head and wear some robes, yeah. right? It's not that hard, right? And you, in terms of becoming a Buddhist monk, you can call yourself a Buddhist monk and nobody would question it because there's no sort of, you know, you're not going to ask them for a certification, right? Mm -hmm. So people often get fooled by conceptual names and forms, right? If something looks like it's legit, <laughs> mm -hmm. then, you know, and so there's a reason why, you know, the cults often use a lot of symbolic imagery, right? They, or they associate themselves with a particular already established known figure, right? They call themselves a separate denomination of Christianity. So you think, oh, they're Christians as well, right? But they might be doing a very completely different thing, right? Everything's, their, their brochures are all nicely typefaced, good fonts, good colors, right? So again, you have all of these subtle tactics to gain people's trust. And mm -hmm. then there is consciousness, 
right? So the idea of lack of awareness, right? So if you're not aware of these tactics being used against you, then how could you be asked to sort of fend against them? Which is why that particular person, right? I think Hassan, right? You mentioned yeah. is writing books is because he wants people to know like these, this is what is going on, right? If you didn't know, you could be easily fooled, right? But now that you're aware of the tactics, then you could sort of understand and be more self-aware that when someone's doing it to you mm -hmm. oh this is what you're doing i can see what's happening right so like you know as a kid like any sort of nerd who didn't have a lot of friends right you learned magic right you picked up some magic and you know now magic is completely ruined for me right i can't watch like <laughs> without knowing and being self-aware that oh that's what you're doing oh that's a that's a palm right oh, that, that's a double lift and that's all of that stuff there's a good and bad side to it the good side is that you learn to appreciate the art mm -hmm. so there is an element of appreciation here right cults what they do is absolutely horrifying but you can't help but admire the way they do it. Yeah, it's, it's tactically beautiful, <laughs> yeah. right? It's so amazing how they've yeah. come up with this, um, this system that targets our human vulnerabilities. So there is an element of appreciation, but there's also an element of recognizing, okay, I know what you're doing. Stop that, <laughs> right? <laughs> this is, a, ter this is yeah. a terrifying sort of thing. Yeah, I, I think um, from... I've seen this repeated several different times. It's that um, uh, within the American population, 20% of that population is very easily persuaded and hypnotized and everything like that. They will fall mm -hmm. for whatever you put in front of them. And then there's mm -hmm. a top 20% that will never be hypnotized mm -hmm. or swayed, right? Yeah. But if we imagine that in the world, the 20% is a large portion of the population. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and people go after them, you know, mm. an authoritarian, a populist, populists yeah. go after this, this targeted group. We're mm. being oppressed by the evil elite. Follow me guys to your liberation. Mm. Um, yeah, I think, um, I think if you, if you find your own truths and you're very confident mm. in them, and you never, and you never fall victim to certainty or absolutism, All right? I mm -hmm. think just doing that, you'll be pretty safe. But one thing that was really hard for me in my journey in questioning all my social programming and stuff was the lack of certainty. Mm -hmm. That really like weighed me down heavy. I'm, I'm sure mm -hmm. you felt the same. And uh, even you know uh, nihilism as I deprogrammed mm -hmm. and became more atheistic um mm. i was a, a very hardcore atheist for like a very long time and and just mm. that the meaninglessness and the uncertainty really made me want to fall back into groupthink just for the comfort of it mm. um i think i managed doing that um you know one thing that helped me was the philosophy of absurdism mm. instead of being like oh everything's meaningless or victor frankl actually was probably the greatest one I'm the mm -hmm. creator of meaning. I assign meaning. And then coming at atheism in a more artistic way. Like, I can create all these things. Atheism is actually pretty generic, but you can you can look mm -hmm. at science as a spirituality, or even the way you relate to the world can be very beautiful, or the way you relate to your consciousness. And mm -hmm. you become an active rather than a passive person in life, right? Mm -hmm. Once you deprogram 
and certainty you can change your perspective on that rather than being something unheavy it can be something really exciting and playful like i'll always have something to learn and a way to grow and life will always be fresh and interesting how boring is it to be certain and to know it all you know mm-hmm. how stagnant yeah. Uh, you can shift your perspective on these things and not be crushed by them. I mean, do you feel the same? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's hard because craving certainty in an ever-changing world again is very difficult. Yeah. Right. We can find principles of things or how of how things are supposed to work, but in terms of the actual facts of the world, they change all the time. It depends, right? Yeah. And that's why scientists often like if you ask a scientist a very simple question, it's very hard to get a simple answer because it's so complicated. Yeah. There's so many factors and variables at play, so it always depends. Yeah. So you know, but. In general, people like simple answers, and that's what cults and religions can give. They give simple answers, right? They say, just do this, just believe in me, just yeah. do that. But in reality, the truth is always more complicated. It always depends on the situation, who you are. You know, there's a reason why there's so many different techniques uh, in you know, a lot of faiths, and it's never a one-size-fits-all, one because it depends. It always depends on what you're good with. Maybe some things work better with this. And I have friends who work in like education, who learning how to, you know, teach, often have to be aware of the fact that people learn different things at different rates in different ways, mm-hmm. and people will have they'll be predisposed to learn this in a different way. And if you think that there is a one size fits all, you ultimately benefit some people and disadvantage others, mm-hmm. right? And if you're a Rawlsian or if you're like particularly sort of uh, of of the notion that judging or assigning people's advantage or disadvantage based on luck, which is through no fault of their own, Rawls thinks that this is a major source of injustice. Yeah, right? If you do nothing to correct this, if you recognize that people are born a certain way, right? they're raised in a certain household, born in a, in a socioeconomic status, born into a certain culture, and there'll be some things that they're better at and some things that are worse at, by no fault of their own, then, and you do nothing to correct it and you perpetuate it by assigning a one-size-fit-all policy, then you're doing a huge injustice to those who just happen to be unlucky, right? And so I think we're becoming more self-aware and more aware of the fact that, you know, some people are visual learners, some people learn this way, some people learn that way, they have to mm-hmm. be hands-on, right? Some people are artistic, some people are logical thinkers, and they're all perfectly valid ways of thinking. Yeah. But again, there's like the old problem is that every cooperation or every professional manager wants to standardize things. They want to monitor what they consider to be success or progress. Mm-hmm. And they want a one-size-fit criteria to monitor that success, right? Our examinations are based on the same notion. Practically speaking, I can see why. Because if you couldn't tell, right, who did better than who, how should universities select who should join their top you know, top 10 schools of the world. How do you know which are the better students and which are the worst students? You know, who do you decide to pour your sort of hard-earned resources and teachers mm-hmm. to, right? The more I say this, the more I realize how ridiculous this, act- this notion actually is, <laughs> yes. right? Imagine that that is why you do it, right? You're not trying to educate a population. You're trying to filter them out so you only focus your resources on the you know, lucky or the advantageous, right? And mm-hmm. you completely ignore the fact and the needs that other, the other sort of, uh, you know, not as well performing by your criteria students, yeah. right? 
it seems radically unfair, right? It seems radically ridiculous once you recognize that that is how our system selects, you know, survival of the fittest, right? Survival of the fittest was meant to be, you know, a warning, not a model example of how to conduct, you know, human relationships. Yeah, Darwinism has been so manipulated and used for, I mean, eugenics, all these, actually, you know what? No, this is another tangent, but your school yeah. was kind of like yeah. the founding of European eugenics. Yeah. I found that out exactly. recently. I was like, yeah. oh my God, that's Yeah, we were the center of eugenics. <laughs> they, taught, yeah. they taught the Germans. Oh, man. Yeah. Wow. It's horrifying, and, it's, and it proves that institutions <laughs> are often conflicted. On one hand, right, we're the first UK university to accept all genders of all different religions. Right? We were actively rebelling against... Oxford and Cambridge and their demand that if you were to study there you had to be male and you had to be Christian mm-hmm. right so we were founded on such great values but of course just because it's the same institution like this brings back this notion <laughs> of impermanence and name and form just because something has the same name yeah. and it has the same form doesn't mean that in of itself it is the same thing and that's why repu- I never you know as a kid you're sold this idea that you're supposed to choose people and institutes based on their reputation but then you actually spend some time there and you realize that reputation means absolutely nothing because it's based on past information yeah. and history right and what's happened in the 1800s is not going to be a very good sort of indicator of what's happening now sure we had values of equality and this notion of trying to break boundaries but immediately right we yeah. University of London had a separate, we have a separate university that's very close called King's College, which is effectively what the church's response to our anti-religious sentiments is. Like, yeah. okay, you can have your university that's anti-Christian, <laughs> we'll have our King's College that is, you know, obeying the monarchy and obeying the Christian faith. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I think in general, right, it seems that the purpose of education should be, right, not that it is doing that now, but it should be trying to get people to be self-aware of where they're taking their information from, like what their source is, if you'd like, of interacting with the outside world, whether it be your senses. Like, very, it, you know, I've seen sort of certain schools at a younger age, kindergartens in Japan, for instance, in Korea, they first teach, you know, basic everyday life stuff because that's where all of our information begins from our senses, right? What yeah. you see, you know, what you should do, how, you know, pick up after your rubbish. You have to look at the rubbish to know that, you know, you have to be aware that you've dropped rubbish in order to realize that you should pick it up. So it has to start from very, very simple foundations and then you can move on to things like wider concepts but if we don't start there then it very becomes very very difficult as you say to deprogram people when they're already used to having these inputs through their senses like you know always have their earplugs plugged in in certain types of music certain types of uh auditory information certain types of podcasts audiobooks and then you create an echo chamber you only Mm -hmm. hear and have access to what you already are used to and you'll Mm -hmm. never be able to sort of move away from it so the reason i went from like a staunch atheist to a buddhist is that i found that buddhist teachings are essentially a manual for deep programming right the first step is discipline right deliberately recognizing the fact that okay i may be addicted to my phone or i'm gonna be addicted to this or i really like i have to scroll for eight hours a day deliberately saying okay 
he, I have to set myself a standard of way of doing this and try to, right, remove myself from these things that are dictating everything I see and hear and get information from, right? I have to set myself a protective sort of sequence. And then after a while, you abandon that idea because it's only going to help you so far until you start clinging and becoming addicted to the, the routine itself. That can in mm -hmm. itself be a problem. So the Buddha says, well, the next step, okay, once you've gotten used to that and you're no longer addicted to the easy stuff, now you have to do a lot of meditation, which is essentially just settle down. You have to stop mm -hmm. sort of just taking for granted what everything else is telling you how the world is going to be like, what you should do, what you should do. You should settle down, take mm -hmm. some time for yourself, have a bath, Right, and think about it and become self-aware of what's going on. Treat yourself. Right? Exactly. Otherwise, you know, if you're always moving on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, you'll never have the the notion yeah. of being able to really have a good look. And but unfortunately, the economy is sort of set up in a way where you're always on the move. Right? Yeah. You yeah go from it's work and then play. Right? You never get to settle down. You have to work and then you're convinced that after work you have to go out to the pub with your mates, have yeah. a drink, get wasted on the weekends, watch football on the weekends. You never get a time just to be and settle yeah. down. And so it, it's essentially, you know, I, I was an atheist philosophically, you know, actually technically speaking, philosophically, nobody can ever say anything other than they're agnostic. Yeah. But for practical purposes, an atheist is a person that says, okay, there is no positive evidence for any of this stuff, right? Or right. the evidence doesn't hold up. And then it's a after that, right, exactly. And after that, I realized, okay, now that I know this, what am I supposed to do about this? Science mm -hmm. has not offered us uh, a deprogramming solution because that no. then belongs to the field of psychology, right? And so a lot of psychiatric treatment, you know, is to deal with that. Unfortunately, I'm also starting to see a trend that a lot of psychiatry and psychology and counseling have become the opposite is deprogramming you from certain things and then reprogramming you in other things yeah right it's sort of advocating for a system so i saw this video by wisecrack the other day where uh i think raises a very good point where a lot of people are now going to therapy which is a great thing but people who have no expertise in there in in any of this yeah. suddenly start using a lot of these terms in their daily lives pretending that they know what's going on for instance yeah. we now hear everybody saying gaslighting yeah right or toxic or setting boundaries and things like that they use psychological terms without mm. ever really understanding or doing the work to figure out what they mean and they give advice that's the horrifying <laughs> thing right they go on tiktok <laughs> and they give advice for people's relationships you know and what they should do with their lives yeah that's equally as horrifying as yeah. a cult right so after realized this and I, I saw this trend i actually actively sort of went and volunteered for uh shout uk which is a a service that deals with like uh mental crisis texting so people would oh so you really did have, that wow yeah so they 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 sort of people would have very emotional uh breaks or they want they feel suicidal would text the service and uh you know a volunteer would walk them through the process and the reason why i did it was partly selfish and partly involuntary so i wanted to help people but i also wanted to know right all of the psychology things i wouldn't be able to spend so much money to do a, a three-year degree but I know, right, they offer you free as part of volunteering, sort of 25 hours of training. And a lot of that training is teaching you about some basic psychology, how this should work, right? When you're dealing with a person who is very, very emotional, what does the science tell you are the most effective means to approach 
base, mm-hmm. right? So they're they're backed by the uh, mental health institution in the UK. They're backed by sort of resources and scientific papers that justify the techniques that we use. So mm-hmm. partly, I was there for a free education, a free crash <laughs> course on how this is supposed to work. But of course, that also means I get to use it. But and yes, you're not I've an also armchair philosopher. You're actually yeah. in the, on the ground, <laughs> boots on the ground. So good for you. Yeah, but I think that's necessary, right? You <laughs> have to. Yeah. Like, yeah. Otherwise, that practical knowledge yeah. is books worth of information, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure it was for you. No. Yeah. Yeah. So I love I love this notion. I've discussed this with my previous supervisor before, where there's a lot of Buddhist scholars. This happened to be my area of research. Yeah. Um, but they're they don't practice it, and yeah. so they're missing the point because that. the Buddha didn't teach <laughs> out of he didn't teach philosophy. Technically speaking, mm-hmm. he taught whatever helped with your practical means. Yeah. So for instance, on some occasions he would go into philosophy. And on some occasion, he would just say, oh, yeah, if you, you know, right now you're in a lot of emotion, like there's the famous story of the mustard seed. Mm-hmm. So there was a mother who recently lost her child and she had, was in great grievance, right? And someone told her that if anybody could help you, or if anybody could resurrect your child, like, you know, like Jesus, it would be the enlightened one, the Buddha. And so she goes to the Buddha and says, like, please, you know. Uh, Buddha, please help me resurrect my child. The Buddha says, okay, I will help you resurrect your child, but you must bring me three mustard seeds, right, from a household that has never seen death in three generations. <laughs> right? So she goes to these households, and every household says, oh, I'm really sorry, I, I have lots of mustard seeds, but we've all had death in our families. Mm. So the reason why I love this story, because one, it shows that it's not, you can't, in practical terms, philosophy, pure philosophy doesn't work. Because mm-hmm. if you were suddenly to go into a, a deep philosophical conversation about how death is natural and part of the process of life and everything is impermanent, the woman wouldn't hear it because she's currently in a lot of grief. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's the same way when I do the texting is like you don't give advice. The first thing you should do is get them to just talk, mm-hmm. right? You distract them effectively. You get them to just sit with whatever they're doing. Right? And mm. to recognize and labels like, okay, I'm feeling so-and-so, and get them to talk about it. So in the same way, the Buddha says, okay, I'll give you a distracting task right, to allow you to come to the conclusion that actually death is inevitable and not, nobody could do anything about it. And another contrast I like about this story is that there is no delusion here. Mm-hmm. Right? Unlike Jesus, the Buddha does not resurrect the child mm-hmm. because he knows it's impossible. <laughs> right <laughs> and so we love in other religions they love this idea of faith and divine being able to work miracles and to bring back the impossible the thing i love about science and i think i love about the practicality of at least the buddhism from 2500 years ago of course there's a lot of magic now in buddhism uh, all over the place is that a recognition and acceptance of the fact that there's some things you just cannot change, <laughs> yeah. right? It, there's nothing you can do about sort of certainties in life, such as its finality and its impermanence, yeah. that no matter what you do, things change. I think that's a good, that's a healthy attitude. And I think mm-hmm. that is also something good to be aware of when encountering cults that promise, mm-hmm. right? The impossible, that they will say, if you do this, then everything will be okay. <laughs> You'll you'll never suffer again in your life, right? Um, Stephen Fry once once went to uh, you know on a tour of the the 
was it called Salt Lake City, where more the Mormons mm-hmm. were found were founded, and at the end, of course, the tour is of course a proselytization in disguise, where they say they're going to give you a tour, but of course they're convincing you the entire way to join their religion, yeah. and in the end they say, well, I'm not trying to convince you or anything. They love saying that I'm not trying to convince you of anything, but. I'll just let you know that you know we, the Mormons, you know the Church of the Latter Day Saints, know that when we die, we'll be reunited with all of our family, mm. right? And Stephen Fry, famous, you know, he said that uh, he questioned, well, what what happens if we're good? <laughs> <laughs> Because it, for him, he considers being reunited with all of your family <laughs> is this form of torture, <laughs> this hell, <laughs> this never-ending Christmas. <laughs> Right. But yeah, I think people of you know cults and religions and you know and even governments often try and promise things that are impossible or things that sound too good to be true. Mm -hmm. And one source of awareness of recognizing that something is wrong is when you just take a little bit longer to recognize. Okay. This sounds too good to be true, right? There is no way, right, that the government will be able to do all of this, right? They love it in their campaigns. We'll cut this tax. We'll cut this tax, and then we'll remove this. We'll do away with that, just to try and buy your vote. And then when it happens, when they do, you know, sit in power, nothing changes. Yep. Right, because practically speaking, they all they had to do was get there. Yeah. Right. It doesn't, you know, whether you like it or not, they're going to be there for a while, and there's nothing you can do afterwards. Have did you ever have like you know back when you were a student? Did you ever get involved in like student politics and that sort of thing, elections and that sort of thing? No, but there were plenty of politics in general. Yeah. Um, yeah. They. Any 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 group of people is is politics mm-hmm. and things you have to navigate and people mm-hmm. fighting for power. Um, you right. have your betas and alphas and, and then your outsiders and. Mm. Yeah, it, no matter what, um, you know, there's people trying to control everything. Yeah, and these people relaxed and they're just fine with everything. And you have to deal with all these dynamic personalities, um, and mm. also different cultures. You know, it can be hard because they deal with emotions differently, or they they say things a certain right. way, or um, or you know, maybe the way they think is respectful to act to you is offensive, um, and. Mm. But I don't know. I think uh, if you're seeking the truth, you know, um, that's good enough. You will, you will, in the end, uh, get to where you need to go and, and be safe. It's a, it's a starting point. Paying yeah. attention is a starting point, right? Yeah. Well, I hope this was helpful to everyone who's listening. I hope you're not currently being brainwashed or manipulated. <laughs> <laughs> Or currently in a cult. <laughs> if, if you are, go look at Stephen Hassan, and um, yeah. thank you to everyone who is listening and supporting the podcast and supporting us on Patreon and donating. Um, and remember to be critically creative.